Fit and Theater of the Words presents The Reprehensibles, The Fight for Earth's Future. Episode 16, Part 2, Maria Travels to the Moon. It was mid-morning in the North American Quadrant Number 2. Maria was slumped down in a transitway heading east on her way to her final destination, the lunar surface. When Maria had met her parents after the trouble in the quadrant, she was stunned that they insisted that she take the lunar job and get away from the violence and the depravity and the lack of food. She was still very much depressed about her skin color as she looked outside. The land, to her surprise, was virtually unchanged, and this ride was as mundane as her regular rides on the transitway. Any changes in the land was hidden beneath the thousands of Zambian modules. Occasionally, she would catch sight of a habitat which brought Terence Wilson into her mind, or another greeny barrier which left her rolling in self-pity. She remained introspective as the transitway traversed the quadrant in the direction of the ocean. She finally perked up as she neared the third sea. Unbeknownst to her, there were five kilometers of modules constructed over the water. A modest effort compared to the 40 kilometer stretches along the southern waters. The transitway finally left the modules behind, continuing along its basin atop the high-rising pillars from the ocean, tens of meters below. The waters were gray and foreboding, like winter's crashing storm waves. Soon the modules were out of view as they crossed the choppy sea. In the distance, as time passed, she could see the beginnings of the quadrant offices. The conglomeration of all the local computer circuits and memory retrievers where all the instantaneous decisions were made affecting billions of people. Hundreds of buildings rose from an oval platform several kilometers long and very high above the water. The transitway had been climbing at a steep angle for some time. Some of the buildings were cylindrical structures of varying colors, poking up through smaller or pointed or pyramid edifices. In this geometric confusion were domes and box-like enclosures overhead. A single transitway connected the higher points of the building, probably for easier access. Maria's destination was a rectangular platform to the east, overshadowed by a towering hangar which, despite its height, was only a fraction as large as the departure hangar on the moon. Many ships were constantly landing on strips beside it, and the area was one of general activity. The transitway entered the inside of the Zambian enclosure, covering that city. It veered to the left, slowing to let the people out of the quadrant offices. As it sped toward the hangar, it was virtually empty, a sight that Maria had not seen on a transitway for some time. Slowly, the multi-car transitway looped around the base of the hangar and came to a stop on the far side. Maria arose, still slumping, her turtleneck high up on her neck, and she inserted her card into the slot. I hope you have enjoyed your ride, Miss Almonte. Yes. You are now at the OLA. You may enter the main hangar at gate 14. Yes, 14, she said as she looked up through the windows. Take mover 5 to the scanning room on level 62. Okay, there will be people there, she asked. That is correct, Miss Almonte. I'm all set then. Good, have a pleasant journey to the lunar surface, said the computer. Thank you, she said as she stepped into the warming environment of the artificial atmosphere. She hurried across the landing strip to gate 14 as the transitway began its trek around the hangar and back across the quadrant. 
She walked through the gate and into the lobby of a glassed-in section near the movers. She wasted little time in getting to mover number five, one step closer to the moon. The 62nd level was a wide-open room with hundreds of people sitting on the floor in lines. Under the words, scanning area, were several computer slots, and she slowly pushed her card inside. Welcome to the scanning area, level 62, Miss Almonte. I must warn you that the next eight or nine hours are going to be very tedious for you. You will be required to wait in line in the line that is formed around the outside room. Each new Luna aggregate employee will be personally questioned and greeted by our staff. When the interview is over, all employees will report to the hangar portion of level 62. An iJet is waiting for departure to the orbiting silo where you will board the cargo transport for your new assignment on the moon. Again, the wait is monotonous. Please try to bear with it. Maria appreciated the wait as she was extremely tired. She had spent the entire night on the floor with only one and a half hours sleep. Her mind was extremely active though and she drifted into the half-real world of her subconscious. Images of modules punctuated her brain. She was traveling by them at incredible speed. As she passed them, they were being eaten away in her dream. But there was nothing behind her. It was as if a fast-acting acid was demolishing the modules to nothing. And just as quickly as the modules vanished, trees and corn would grow upward like in the reserve. However, far behind her, there were thick clouds with thunderous lightning bolts zigzagging to earth and into newly formed forests. In front, thousands of greenies ran for their lives, just ahead of the ensuing fires. Although she was moving at an incredible speed, she tried to reach back to the clouds, her hands and arms growing longer and longer. As hard as she tried, she could not stop the onslaught and she retreated. Suddenly, her cousin Andrew appeared next to her, his face smiling in an internalist glee. He put his hands to his forehead, but she did not understand what he meant, and he motioned for her to do the same. Slowly, as she was not religious, she raised her hands to her forehead, but the strangest feeling came over her. She felt herself growing larger and larger, so large she was hovering over the entire quadrant. Keeping her hands squarely in place, she lowered her face into the monstrous black clouds, the darkness consuming her vision. And all at once, the clouds were scattered to the winds and the sky was blue. Hey, you, Greenie, wake up, yelled a voice to the rear. She was hesitant to open her eyes and wanted to see more of her dream. She opened her eyes as her dream ended abruptly. It took a few seconds, but she was caught off guard and she had no idea where she was. Like a snapping whip, Reality came back to her, and the vague images of the dream settled back into her brain. Your turn, Greenie, cried another. I'm not a Greenie, she snapped as she jumped to her feet and walked to the opening of the scanning area. She handed her card to a lunar aggregate security man and looked up at the clock. It was late in the day. Cleared, said the computers. You may go inside, said the man as he was baffled how a greenie would qualify for any responsible Luna aggregate job. He handed the card back to her and she stuck it in her wallstead. She entered a room with a large window and thousands of window panes overlooking the rough ocean below. Ten Luna aggregate employees were seated in an elevated table like the judges presiding on a bench. They buzzed at the color of her skin. Very unusual said the prim and proper man in the center. You are a greenie. 
I am not a greenie, Maria answered firmly once again. Ah, miss, he laughed, if you are not a greenie, then perhaps you would mind explaining the masquerade. Here is my card. I was taken prisoner by the greenies for almost two days. It's all on the card, she said, as she gave it to him and he inserted it in the slot. Computer, verify Miss Almonte's statement with a cross-check in other circuits. Your story is true, Mr. Scanlon. She is a grade 7 FPA. You don't think your color will cause you some problems, Miss Almonte? Like my parents and others have said, this color, this green color, will slowly fade away. Oh, I can handle myself, Mr. Scanlon. My mind is clear. I'm willing to submit to a genetic computer examination of my body. No, that won't be necessary. Tell us about your feelings and reasons for going to the lunar surface, said a woman to the right. I'm an outsider, and I have lived the lifestyle of one depraved of benefits as compared to a habitat dweller. My parents still live in a module in my new assignment, so they may lead a better life. In turn, I will be living a new life a new life on the moon, and helping in the effort to feed the people on Earth. As one who has seen life from many angles, I can appreciate the importance of increasing food production on Earth. Very commendable. find you a unique personality, one with a certain perspective, a fine asset to lunar aggregate. Now, Miss Almonte, you will proceed down the ramp to your right at the end of the room. It leads to level 62 hangar. An air jet is ready for a flight into Earth orbit within 15 minutes or as soon as it is filled. You will be required to wait in the Earth silo station until all employees are shuttled up. At that time, you will board the cargo transport for the flight to the moon. Thank you, said Maria proudly. You're very welcome, Miss Almonte. A pleasure meeting you and good luck, said Scanlon, as Maria, with nothing but her clothes from the other day on her back, headed for the ramp. The air jet was about the size of a transitway in seating capacity. It was not long before the ship was packed to its limit and ready to fly into orbit. Unlike the more sophisticated ships, this ship had shoulder harnesses and waist belts as the only compensating effect against gravity forces. She looked out the window as the air jet began to move. The sleekly designed ship taxied around the interior of the hangar as the bay doors opened to the gray outside sky. A portion of the clear Zambian enclosure slid back as the ship was aligned in proper position. All was ready as the computers activated the engines, and with a massive burst of energy, the aircraft roared out of the hangar. Maria viewed the takeoff from the window, spellbound as the air jet angled upward into the clouds, leaving the quadrant and Earth City receding into the haze. The air jet penetrated the clouds in seconds. As it rocketed above the fluffy white cloud floor, it now appeared to move away from them. Maria, G-forces pushing her head against the seat, tried to look outside. She could see the sky was becoming dark now as the forces diminished, and the curvature of the earth was well defined by a heightened blue line. The jet angled away from the horizon, and the effects of unrestricted weightlessness settled in. In fact, a few pranksters had generously let some of their essential articles float around the ship. Everyone gasped and laughed at the contented feeling of not being held back by gravity. In the stellar void, with the sun burning brightly in the distance and the earth clouds below, the air jet passed a few of the floating factories and furnaces. 
The structures assumed odd shapes and colors, each manufacturing its own artificial gravity, in some cases using weightlessness to produce their products. All of the Earth's satellites were dwarfed by a slowly spinning white disk over a kilometer in diameter, which was rapidly coming into view. Around the outside of this silo were thousands of yellow pinpoints, the windows above the ubiquitous Muna Aggregate logo in stark silver letters. The very top of the disk served as a landing pad with miniature hangars at varying locations around the Gray Zambian. In the center was the main point of interest on in the top of the silo, the cargo transport ramp pointing to the heavens. The air jet circled over the giant disk, sweeping to a landing strip marked 11. It rolled to a very slow speed as it passed through the open doors of the hangar. The doors were locked and the air jet sank with the floor into a lower airlock. Maria had arrived at the silo station, one step closer to her new life on the moon, and in one quantum leap away from the trouble-ridden Earth. A meeting was taking place which brought together all the quadrant leaders, military and intelligence, men and women from around the world. They had gathered into a spacious assembly room at the top level of the IGU building. Elaborate sound screens encompassed the room as the conversation echoed around the conference. The only factor delaying the beginning of the meeting was the arrival of the chairman. His advisors were all in place along a red draped table, under a wall abutting the ocean. On either side of the room were two galleries, packed to capacity at the opposite end of the room, with only people with security clearances. They continuously talked as they waited for the chairman. Inspector Manfred Glass strutted into the room with Arier and Stephanie. Several pages stopped him and led him to the front table while women were brought to the gallery. Glass was remarkably calm. He now knew the reasons why they had been so suddenly yanked from his investigation on the moon. As he sat down, the computer sounded. The chairman has arrived. The chairman, an aging man with a kinky white beard and dark brooding eyes, walked from the doorway and all grew still. No one dared show any emotion, as it might have been taken as a sign of disrespect. He was the man who had been elected by the quadrant leaders, the military, and the computers to be the Earth leader for ten years, wearing a stark white grass coat that flowed down to his ankles and a royal blue turtleneck. The chairman was taken to his position at the center of the long table. He stood in front of the group, looking upward as if he were in a trance, and he spoke with a low, close to almost inaudible mumble. His voice was picked up by a complicated zeroing device which caught the sound from his voice and transmitted it by microwave to the selected areas of the room where it emerged in the air for listening. The greatest events draw us to Earth City today. From the first time since the abolition of nuclear weapons and since the Earth merged into quadrants, we faced the possibility of being destroyed. Maybe not this very minute and maybe not this very year, but the possibility looms over all our people like a sword, a sword that will sever our vital necessities and throw us into a dark age of death, destruction, and terror. The chairman in his short statement had summarized the problem. He sat down and lowered his head in reflective meditation. In the gallery, seated next to Colonel Gibbs, was Mike Stracco in his full dress uniform. Stracco had never seen the chairman and had pictured him as a robust, vital man who directed the computers with an expertise singular only to himself. Instead, he found this quiet, sensitive, and inner man who seemed powerless and pleading. 
Jim Pierce was seated at a round table adjacent to the long table. He rose from his seat and walked down the entire length of the room to the screen. Collecting his thoughts, he turned and faced the assemblage. Last week, we were receiving daily broadcasts from an agent we planted on the moon. During that time he was there, his penetration became almost complete. That is, up until a few days ago. We've had no reports from him since that time and assumed he is either dead or unable to transmit. That agent, planted within the structure of the lunar aggregate, was our vital link in the surveillance of this growing and very powerful interplanetary company. What we were told in this final broadcast has alarmed us all. Let me backtrack for a few moments. The agent, Pseudonym Connections, told us in his next to the last report that the lunar aggregate, as you all know by now, has been responsible for the global sabotage in the food production and fusion plants. He warned us in that broadcast that the next act of sabotage would take place in the second North American quadrant at a food production plant in T25 of that quadrant. We notified Colonel David Gibbs of IGU in that tea. He was given only the basics of what was to happen. We did not inform him who we thought was behind the sabotage, nor could we relate our information to the owners of the plant, the Nexus Hedge Bank. What was needed, gentlemen, was proof of Connections' assertions. The final decision approved by the chairman itself was to place men with scanners inside the plant. Their task would be information gathering only. Computer, Post stills of the T-25 plant. Here it is, 10 men armed with locators entering the plant from an outside tunnel. Note the orange light still in the scan, he said as Strackle thought of the friend Scotty Bear dead on the floor and how anonymous he was to these men. Origin of the light is unknown. The other scans of the plant literally being cut apart, plant personnel killed, vats and conduits ruined. Further, they've devastated the lines to the raw food warehouse, which you can see that from this shot inside, said Pierce as he turned from the screen and returned to the table. Major Linville will brief you on the exact meaning of these pictures. Major Linville. Linville, a tall but thin man, stood up and headed for the screen. Let us not take what I'm about to say too lightly. We have run a logistics scan on each of the men involved in the sabotage operation. It took some time because of the forged input cards and false credentials. But we are now positive that we have seven out of the ten men identified. And they are identified as employees of the Luna Aggregate Company stationed on the moon at last check. In short, the Luna Aggregate Company is definitely responsible for warlike acts against the Earth quadrants. It's not my position to spell out our policy and our responses. That will be done in a few minutes. Let me just add to the growing list of aggressive lunar aggregate acts that are still being imposed on us as we sit here tonight. Gentlemen, this is how the Greenies have increased their passageway to the outside. This splitter was manufactured in a lunar aggregate orbiting factory above Earth. We have checked the magnetic configuration of the metal parts along with the obvious lack of impurities, and all signs point to the point of origin. So let us view this as act number two in the lunar aggregate plan. Discord created by a food crisis and the added problems of starving greedies gushing through the barriers. These acts have and could further bring Earth into anarchy. 
So why don't we act? To answer that question, I turn the floor over to Admiral Daniels. Admiral. The elder Daniels marched to the front of the room, his back arched like a young cadet. He tensed the lines on his face as he surveyed the galleries, the front table, and the round table below. Thank you, Major Linville. I will start by saying that we are in a very unenviable position tonight. Earth as we know it may cease to exist with drastic steps, which I might add I have advocated for several years, unless these drastic steps are implemented immediately. Why do I sound like a very panicky and cynical old man? I sound this way because Connections, in his last report, warned of something called the bottom line. He spoke of his next move, a penetration of a restricted area, an area which defies my reasoning as to why we have allowed such things to happen. He said as he raised his voice, I cannot believe that we have sat by and... Admiral, said the chairman, you will stay with the facts as you know them and the recommendations as agreed to by all of us. What is done is done. Let us look at what we are going to do. Daniels looked down at the floor in rage because he personally blamed the chairman for the present difficulties, and then he slowly looked up. My apologies, chairman, he said, almost to the point of sarcasm. Connections reported he had suspicions of a massive manufacturing plant on the lunar surface. That plant was working around the clock to produce a sophisticated fleet of spacecraft armed with powerful blasters. The sole ambition of that effort, according to his evaluation, would be to bring the Earth quadrants to their knees. He said that his source boasted of over 200 ships of an estimated goal of 500. But Connections is gone. And we can't confirm this, nor do we know if they are anywhere near that goal. This leads to our next and most pressing problem. Earth defenses just don't exist. The reasoning behind this is that we've never been exposed to a threat that would warrant such a defense. Accordingly, we have begun a modification of every single Earth orbiting ship and lunar ship. Belatedly, we have started the beginnings of production facilities in several quadrants to produce defensive ships. I say defensive because there's no way we can match their ships. Lunar aggregate ships travel through space at incredible speeds, and the secret of those speeds is heavily guarded, known only to a few men. Therefore, we will attempt to further plant agents with lunar aggregate. One will be planted in one of the cargo transports in an attempt to gain access to the space drive that they use. His name is Lieutenant William Gigliano from the European Quadrants T-97. Lieutenant Gigliano has an expertise in the new physics, but he will be planted as a flight attendant. Secondly, we are sending a man directly into what we believe is a spacecraft operation on the lunar surface. He, as Lieutenant Gigliano, have been recruited under the lunar aggregate advertisements here on Earth. Second man is Captain Michael Strasso. I'm sorry, Colonel Michael Strasso now. He was promoted for his role inside the food production plants and other activities. Colonel Strasso will be placed in a job as component assembler. Now I do realize this sounds like any other job, but there is one vital exception. Each of these so-called assemblers will be required 
to fly an air jet. And from what the computers told us, the assemblers are supposed to be hostile, aggressive, and almost reckless men. Now, Colonel Strasso, he said, looking into the gallery, I know you're a little more tame than that, <laughs> but we know you can carry out that description. Colonel Strasso's assignment listed in the lunar aggregate imports is classified with periods of segregation from the rest of the world. Computers have analyzed this many times as compared with connections accusations. There is a 15% probability Colonel Straco will not be brought into the assembly plan, in which case he will return to Earth at once. On the other hand, if he is brought in the restricted area, this, this bottom line, he will begin immediate scramble broadcasts to Inspector Manfred Glass, and if he finds that an invasion is imminent, he will use any means to thwart it. What we need, gentlemen, is a rare commodity nowadays. With the proper secrecy, we can match their space speeds, and we can know their logistics, and we can meet them head-on and save the planet. Finally, I should add that we have entrusted Inspector Glass with the authority to coordinate the operation on the moon. Since lunar law is different from Earth, it makes it very difficult to investigate anything. To our advantage, he is already engaged in investigating the death of Darius Constantine, the former CEO of Luna Aggregate. We don't know at this time if his death is linked to this whole mess. I speak for Jim Pierce when I say that Darius Constantine was a man of honor, concerned with the betterment of the human race. Inspector Glass will continue the investigation very carefully, and he has the chairman's personal authority to use whatever informers he might need in his overall plan. Benefits have already been set aside for the informers, and hopefully we will gain that new information. Now, I turn the floor over to Commander Televon, who will take us down a more detailed state of Earth's defenses. He said as he headed for the table to sit down. Pierce arose and looked at him incredulously. The agents and Inspector Glass will be leaving for further briefings. They will depart the silo station in staggered shifts from different points on the globe, so their actions won't be linked. Please, gentlemen, stand before you go, he said, as the three stood in their respective places in the room. I salute you, he said, and actually saluted as the room burst into applause. They remained standing for a few moments until they were escorted to the front. They left through the side entrance for their consultations prior to the flights to the Earth silo. Glass was the first to be brought to the silo. Carrying his computer, he passed many rooms to Meriwether Constantine's office, including the ones stuffed with new Luna Aggregate employees. The short-haired Meriwether was already standing in the doorway as Inspector Glass approached. Meriwether, called Glass, been here long? About ten years, laughed Meriwether. Actually, only a few minutes. The computers told me you're on your way down. They called you back to Earth, eh? He asked as Glass followed them inside the office and the doors closed. Yes, said Glass, acting his part. These jokers have no conception of how to run an investigation. Really? Oh, briefings on what I've uncovered, that sort of thing. I could just as easily have done it over the screens. My gracious, what a view up here, exclaimed Glass as the front wall of clear Zambium sloped downward. The station was directly overhead the seaboard of the North American quadrant, its clouds bright in the morning sun. If you'll excuse me, I'll have to get used to this. Feels like we're going to fall through the atmosphere. 
Well, once you get used to it, said Merriweather as he dimmed the lights, it can be quite relaxing. I sit here for hours sometimes and just stare. Provides a welcome solace. I imagine it does, providing you have the time, said Glass. I've had much to think about, Inspector. May I call you Manfred? That would be better than what your brother has just called me. <laughs> Neville can be quite blunt at times. Usually at the wrong times, said Glass as they sat on an aqua-colored sofa in front of the window. Is there anything I can get you, Manfred? The cargo transport isn't scheduled to arrive for another half an hour, and there'll be an hour wait for the food to be unloaded. Oh, maybe just some sucrun and a snack. Nothing elaborate. Computer. Direct Billy Otis to bring some suprin. And bring some chocolate nudge cake to my office, said Merriweather. Ah, I can see you've been doing a little investigation of your own there, Merriweather, said Glass. Enough to find out my incurable nudge cake habit. No investigation, just scuttlebutt. If it gets me the nudge cake, then let them keep scuttlebutting. Merriweather leaned forward, staring at the earth intensely as he waited for the men to arrive with the nudge cake. You look as though you're about to solve all of Earth's problems, said Glass. Oh, said Merriweather as he snapped back to reality. I was just thinking about your investigation. I don't want to sound out of place, nor do I want to overstep your authority, but my brother... Is he at all connected with the murder of my father? Glass flinched. Do you think he is? Returned Glass as the computer sounded. Billy Otis. Send him in. The tubby Otis came through the doors with a large tray containing the chocolate nudge cake and the steaming suprin. Here you go, Mr. Glass. I understand you like those nudge cakes. Word gets around. Merriweather watched Glass pour the sucrin into the cup, and he leaned back toward Earth as he spoke. Neville Inspector can be ill-tempered and gracious and blatantly contemptuous of Earth and his people. He's cunning and devious, but he would not commit murder. He moved right into power, right after the murder. Well, he knew. He knew what? Asked Glass as he set the cup on the table. Are you saying Neville knew the terms of the will before your father was murdered? No, I mean he assumed. Oh, how could he possibly assume anything? Glass wanted to know. Unless he had prior knowledge. If he did marry Wilder, then I probably have answered your question. That could be, without a doubt, one hell of a motive. Merriweather shot to his feet and began to plead his brother's case. Look, Manfred, Desmond knows the lunar operation. I don't, but you're the eldest, insisted Glass as he sipped the Supron. I've come to see the reasoning and the choice of Desmond, and I'm very happy here directing the Earth operations. If Desmond had to be here, he'd lose his mind. My father probably took all that into consideration also. Sounds all well and good, but in between, someone has committed murder. And if you'll pardon me, I just don't trust your brother. And you can tell him I said that if you wish. No doubt he already knows what I think of him. Let's change the subject before I go above. Just my job, said Glass as he dug into the nudge cake. Just my job. And speaking of jobs... The last air jet, the one you were in, was loaded with the final recruits for the jobs throughout the company. Business is booming, eh? 
asked Glass as he thought about the Earth City revelations. He wondered how much Meriwether knew. They'll be brought to the lunar surface on the large cargo transport. Oh, you don't say, said Glass as he studied the man's smooth-skinned face. Yes, we've acquired over 10,000 people, I'm told. They'll be put on a variety of jobs, mostly in the fields and in the mines. Really? More workers mean more food, and more food means less trouble on Earth, he said with a conviction reminiscent of his father. I'll grant you that, said Glass. But how do you gather 10,000 people to fill all those different jobs? My father originally put out the jobs list before his death. It's been revised by Neville and his associates on the lunar surface. The computers coordinate the exact descriptions. It's a matter of matching up the proper temperament and intelligence. Well, jobs never hurt anyone. And if it helps Earth, it will, it will, said Merriweather as he sat on the edge of the sulfur. Manfred, I have to go above now for the transport arrival. Relax and feel free to use the facilities. I'll have the computer give you unlimited voice command and access. Very noble of you. Thank you very much, Merriweather, he said as Merriweather stood. I'll just take in the view if you don't mind, he added as he slumped down on the sofa. Good, I'll see you before you leave, said Merriweather as he walked from the room. Goodbye said Glass as he poured some more supern and looked toward Earth, his thoughts centered on the Earth City meeting. Not only were there the pressures of his investigation, but now he had the added responsibility for a network of spies. He closed his eyes and balanced the supern cup on his chest as he tried to shed the accumulating stress. down the hallway in the corner of one of the small rooms, Maria Almonte was undergoing pressures of her own. She had endured the passing insults about her skin on the flight up, but in the cramped room they were ready to zero in on her. A tall bearded man, slightly older than her, seemed to be the chief instigator. She refrained from paying attention to him until he walked over to her. He lifted her chin up with his finger and looked down at her. Are you supposed to be on board, Greeny? Get your hands off me shouted Maria as she stood in front of him, about up to his chest. Look, I don't take no orders from no greenie, he said as the others closed in on her. I'm not a greenie, and I don't have to explain anything to the likes of you. You look pretty green to me, said a half-shaven man to her right. Just leave me alone, she said loudly. How does a greenie tell us what to do, said another man. Look, my hands and face are green, and I was captured. Oh, he smiled. I wonder, I wonder what she's got underneath. Maria swung both her clenched fists into the man's jar, sending him down to the floor. The other people in the crowd backed off as she retreated to the corner. Glass was on the verge of falling asleep. The shouting had startled him and he spilled the supron on his turtleneck. He set down the cup and walked around the sofa to the doors. When the computer opened the doors, the shouting was very loud. He drew a blaster from his pocket as he ran down the corridor. When he came to the room, he pushed against the people and yelled, All right, everybody back, everybody back. The thirsty crowd did not respond. They were yelling at Maria again. And the inspector, blaster in his hand, aimed at a low setting toward the ceiling. He fired it several times. In this language, they understood. They quickly moved to the sides of the room and stomped inside. 
Maria was on her knees now, her Wallstead on the floor and her turtleneck half ripped off her body. She stood up out of breath. Who the hell do you people think you are? exclaimed Glass as his upper lip curled. You don't think that the Constantines are going to hear about this? Then you're crazy. Maria had moved halfway down the hallway with her arms folded across her chest. She looked at the inspector as he, as he walked by. I don't know who you are, mister, but you just saved me a lot of trouble. Such prejudice, he said as he thought for a moment. I can see as I look closely, you're not a greenie. How do you know that? Oh, the voice inflections. I'm looking at your eyes. Let's just say I've been around a long time and have a lot of experience. You're a feisty one. Most people would have been broken by that crowd. Let's just say I've been around myself, said Maria. Well, I admire someone who gets up when they've been knocked down. Now, you don't have to worry about them, Miss Almonte. Maria Almonte. Miss Almonte, I can have your book in the upper section of the cargo transport for the flight to the moon. Oh, I can handle myself. Oh, I'm sure you can, but I wouldn't have it any other way, said Glass as Aria and Stephanie came down the corridor. Manford, the transport just came in, said Aria. Very good, ladies. This is Maria Almonte. She just had a run-in with these rogues back in the other room. I want her brought to the upper section of the cargo ship. Thank you, said Maria as Glass walked back to Merriweather's office. Mr. Glass, Inspector Manfred Glass. Join us next week for another exciting episode of The Reprehensibles, The Fight for Earth's Future by Robert P. Fitton. Presented by Fitton Theatre of the Words.